Are you all hungry today? forgot to ask that. I hope so. Let's read God's word. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, In his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had let them out out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. I think no matter who you are today, we can all agree on the simple basic fact that departing encounters or departures with one another, nobody wants them to be marked by bitterness. Nobody wants to say goodbye on bad terms in a fit of rage or in a fit of anger. Right? This is true if you, you're at home and you might be just leaving the house for 30 minutes to run to Walmart. You certainly don't want to leave in a dour, sour mood. Right? We don't want to fit in with the rest of Walmart, right? It'll be a light into the darkness. It's true if you're on your, if you're a week away, there's a nine-month deployment that you're about to be sent out on. You certainly don't want to leave your family on bad terms especially in the, in the grandest sense of the word when it comes to departures on your deathbed. You don't want to leave on bad terms. We all want see you later to be filled with hope, joy, love, and fondness. Is it always possible? Not necessarily. But it nonetheless describes the attitude and the desire that's in all of us. We all want to say see you later in a good way. As we conclude our time in the gospel according to Luke, looking at Jesus' final moments before he would leave, and before he would return as well, what is the vibe in this passage? Some passages are somber, they're very serious, very weighty, very, um, again, the crucifixion narrative is all about this, but what is the vibe in this passage, if you were going to summarize it? I would say it's overwhelmingly about hope, It's overwhelmingly about joy, about purpose, and about reassurance in the faith. And the disciples, what's right around the corner for them? Stated differently, are the disciples about to live a very easy, comfortable life? Are they about to walk on a smooth journey? Far from it. They're about to walk on the hardest road they have ever walked. But before they take that first step of discipleship, of obedience to the Lord, what does Jesus do here? 
Before he sends them out, commissions them, sends them on their way, what does Jesus do here for them? He gives them peace. Why does he do that? He gives them peace so that they might proclaim his gospel to all people. But how are they going to do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, church, for you and I today, we still serve the same Jesus. The world changes, people change, circumstances change, but our Lord and Savior never changes. The same mission, the same heart that marked Jesus in the first century still describes him today in 2023. And if you did not catch it, when you walk away today, here's your takeaway. Or stated differently, here's the sermon in a sentence. Our resurrected Lord Jesus gives us peace so that we might proclaim his gospel to all peoples and we can only do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the main point. Let's pick that apart by asking three questions. Number one, what does he give us? Number two, why does he give us it? And then thirdly, how shall we then live? Number one, what does he give us? Peace. It's a pretty obvious, easy answer. But let's unpack what that means. This is from verses 36 to verse 43. At this point in the narrative, the disciples are still frazzled. Okay? The resurrection is still unfolding in real time. They're not fully at peace. They're not fully figured out all that's going on and what's happening next. They're still confused. They're still most likely on edge due to the new sightings, right? Hey, we saw Jesus. We met him. And then others, no, we saw the empty tomb. Hearing those reports, they're still very much on edge. And they're probably still wrestling with some feelings of worry, anxiety, even depression and despair to a degree. They're still very perplexed. And rewind a little bit. Three days ago, what was their last encounter with Jesus like? Asked differently, did they leave, did they depart on good terms? Think about Good Friday. They did not. Not on the part of Jesus, of course. It's on the part of the disciples. right? Because what did they do? They abandoned him. They denied him. They betrayed him. That's how they left the scene. So they did not in any way leave on good terms. Very horrible, bad terms. And then, as we see in the text, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, So Jesus miraculously appears before them. And what were the first words out of his mouth? Peace be with you. It's easy to run over that kind of fast and not really take note of what's going on. Do you just remember the last time they met each other? They they were with each other face to face. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are, Peace be with you. He doesn't look at Peter with a furrowed lip. He doesn't look at Thaddeus and bring up all the sins and all of his mistakes. He doesn't do the same with Andrew and put a guilt trip over his head. Like, how dare you betray me? You all should know better. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he speaks a word of peace to them. A word of peace over them. The Prince of Peace speaks a word of peace over his frail followers. And this is a nice bookend to how the Gospel of Luke opened up. Think about the Christmas account. Luke chapter 2 in particular, when Jesus was born, what did the angel say? 
glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those with whom his favor rests. Jesus came in peace. He came to preach peace, and now the very ending of the book, Jesus is declaring a word of peace over his followers. This is a beautiful, tender demonstration of our Savior's, of our Savior's love. You might be wondering, um, what kind of peace, though? Peace, love, joy, these are words that we throw around all the time. The world uses these terms. What is Jesus talking about? What is God's word talking about? Well, I think there's two layers of peace going on here, two dimensions of it. In the immediate sense, Jesus is encouraging them, giving them peace through his physical presence. Okay, Jesus had just been murdered. Their rudder in life, if you will, is gone. The disciples are now directionless. They are hopeless. They don't know what's going on. But now, Jesus is physically back. And that seems to be the the point of the passage here, because you see verse 37 and following. What does Jesus stress? I'm really here. I'm not a ghost. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Give me something to eat. Right? I'm a real person. I'm physically here in front of you. So he gives them peace in that sense, in the immediate sense. But if you just had a knock em sock em fight with somebody, with a loved one, you part ways with them, and then sometime later you're reunited, you're with each other face to face, is that necessarily good news? Not necessarily. Right? Simply being together again doesn't automatically mend those broken wounds. That's part of it. It's nice to see that he's back physically, but in another deeper sense, Jesus is speaking peace over them in that, hey, I'm back. It's not just I'm back to bring guilt, to bring shame. I'm back and I've restored the relationship. I've come to give you peaceful fellowship with me so that you can have peaceful fellowship with God Almighty. He warmly and tenderly embraces them. And I'm reminded, reading this, I'm reminded of Jacob and Esau. Do you all remember that story, that account in the book of Genesis? Jacob and Esau, for those of you who may not know or unfamiliar with it, Jacob and Esau are twins. They were born, uh, Isaac was their father, who's Abraham, or Isaac's father, Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, twin brothers. Esau is the older brother, the firstborn. Jacob is the younger. And also, he was also the, the littler one. He was smaller than Esau. And I, I don't want to retell the whole narrative, but basically, Esau and Jacob were feuding with one another, Jacob deceived his father. He stole Esau's birthright. The firstborn, the inheritance, he stole it from Esau, tricked him, deceived him, and they were on the run. They'd split ways. They were no longer in close connection with one another. The last time they saw each other, Esau was fuming with rage when he had heard about this. They part ways, and they don't meet each other for years, if not decades of time had passed. But then, do you know how that story kind of resolves? The climactic moment comes for Jacob and Esau to meet each other face to face. God's providence was orchestrating, and they are now about to be reunited together, physically, right, face to face. Jacob was scared to death that his brother, upon seeing him, would punch him in the throat. And when he approaches Esau, he he falls on his knees, falls before him, and kind of bows, and is, you know, this sign of humility... You know what Esau does? 
Esau runs to him, not with a sword, with a big bear hug, ready to embrace his brother. It's been so long, brother. And he warmly embraces and peacefully embraces him. And you see, church, that's a tiny little image, a tiny little foreshadowing of what Jesus would do with his followers and what Jesus does with you and I. He runs to us. Right? Think about the good Samaritan, or, or the, uh, the prodigal son, rather. Right? The father running. Jesus takes the initiative. He pursues us, and he warmly receives us into fellowship with him. He offers us peace. Jesus does not treat us as our sins deserve. The Psalm 103, verse 10 talks about. And as you know, that topic is very massive, right? The peace of God. I, the sermons could be preached on that because you might be wondering, you know what, Pastor, I, I got that. Jesus came to bring us pe- peace with God, but um, I want some peace in my marriage or I want some peace in my house, right? In my, our own context. Little kids are running around all the time screaming, where's the peace, huh? You tell me where the peace is. I remind you, God's word constantly reorients us to what's most important. Constantly reorients us to what's most important. Peace in the marriage, peace in the home, peace with kids, peace with your boss, peace with society, all very important things. The Bible addresses them all. But what's most important is being connected to the source of peace. Because if you do not have peace with him, you will not have peace within If you do not have peace from the Lord, you will not have peace in your life, any area of your life. And Jesus came to restore the most essential thing that you and I need. So what does God give us? What does Jesus give us, church? He gives us peace. That's number one. Number two, why does he give us peace? This is from verses 44 to 48. Why does he give us peace? Number two, so that we proclaim his gospel to all peoples. But look at verse 44 to see how we get there. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. We'll stop there for just a moment. Take note of a few things in that passage. Firstly, Jesus is continuing to mend their hearts. All right? They see Jesus. He's back before them face to face. That doesn't automatically mean they're okay. They're still all over the place. Right? They're still scrambled eggs, if you will. What does Jesus do? He seeks to mend their hearts, to piece their hearts back together, to give them clarity. And how does Jesus do that? Or let me ask it differently. What does Jesus point them to? Somebody tell me. What does Jesus point them to? Look at verse 44. The scriptures. Yes, he does. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Right? Written. What is written? The scriptures are written. Look at verse 45. He opened their minds so they could understand what? The scriptures. Verse 46. He told them this is what is written. Three different times in those three verses, it's what's written. What are the scriptures saying? What is written? And it's a little reminder for you and I that in our confusion in life, what you and I need is to be reoriented, 
around the true north of God's word. So secondly, take note of what Jesus does with the written word. He doesn't just say, hey, go look at your Bible. Open, you know, open the Bible, read it. What does he do with it? What does he point them to more specifically? Well, he does the miraculous, as we see in verse 45. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. But to understand what? What does he want them to understand and to grasp? That Jesus Christ is the center of the scriptures. All the things that are in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, everything that is written about him, This is what he wants his disciples to grasp because, as we'll see in just a few moments, Jesus is about to send them out to proclaim a message. But for them to proclaim that message, they have to first know that message. So he's helping them to grasp the message that they will soon proclaim. During chapel time for preschool, Amy, you know this well, and and with our own kids at home, occasionally I'll hold up the Bible and I'll ask, so what is this, right? It's the Bible, the Holy Bible, God's Word. What is this book about? Who is this book primarily about? Is it primarily about you? No. Is it primarily about the world? No. Does it address those things? Of course. Who is this book primarily about? Jesus Christ. That's the simple, real, true, biblical answer. Who is this book about? It's about Jesus. But the thing is, think about it. An unbeliever can get that to a degree. Okay, what what do I mean? Well, let's say perhaps there's an unbeliever, somebody here present, or somebody tuning in online, they listen to this sermon. All right? And let's say they, they just heard me say that, right? It's all about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. They take a written test. One of the questions asks, what is the Bible about? Can an unbeliever write in the text, Jesus? Yeah. It's not too complicated to get that. So what is Jesus doing here? What is he talking about when he's talking about opening their minds to understand the simple truth? I would propose to you, it's not about cognition, but rather it's about submission. Because Jesus doesn't want people to have just big heads. He doesn't want people to have just facts of knowledge. He wants people to have full hearts so that they might follow him faithfully. Jesus is opening their minds in a supernatural way to grasp that Jesus is the center and then consequently that they would then live supernaturally in submission to him. Did you follow that? All right? It's about submission. That's what he's ultimately doing, opening their hearts, helping them to be humble and sensitive to the word, but to be sensitive to Christ himself who gives all the commands, who gives all the instructions from God's word. So he does so for the sake of submission, for the sake of obedience. And you look at the text, what is it that God is calling them to? Or in other words, what is the aspect of obedience that is highlighted here? Is Jesus, again, to to be plain, is he opening their minds so that they live pure lives with pure thoughts? Right here in the text. Is that the emphasis of obedience? No, it's not. That's true. There's plenty of passages that talk about that. But the part that Jesus is emphasizing here is obedience to the Great Commission. I'm giving you understanding. I'm giving you peace so that you'll proclaim my gospel to all peoples. That's what verse 47 is all about. Repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Uh, One commentator, he said that that verse right there, verse 47, it's the turning point in Luke-Acts, the Luke-Acts narrative, because the book of Acts, the Acts, it's usually called the Acts according to the Apostles or the Acts of the Apostles. I think it's more proper to say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. But nonetheless, that's Luke part 2. And they're saying, they're, they say that verse 47 is the hinge, it's the, the turning point of the narrative. Because it's all about Jesus, who he is, what he proclaimed, what he did on the cross, what he did by his resurrection. Verse 47 and following, it's about proclaiming that message to the world. And that's certainly the case for you and I. And this harkens back. Right, we're doing a little review today. Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Jesus had just begun his public ministry. He had been performing some miracles. He was in a little town called Capernaum. And the people there, they wanted Jesus to stay longer. He had done some miracles. He had healed some in-laws. He had healed some children and whatnot. Hey, Jesus, can you stick around a little longer? I've got a cousin who's going to be coming in from town uh, in a couple days, and I'd love for you to just do something for him. You know what Jesus said to that crowd? Luke 4, verse 43. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because that is why I was sent. Jesus came to heal, absolutely. But in a, a deeper way, he came to proclaim, to announce the kingdom of God had come. And church, this takes us back to the simple question. Why does God give you peace? Why does he give you peace? It's a big question, right? There's several dimensions of what that means, how you can answer that. But from the text, why does God give you peace? Why does he open your mind about the scriptures? So that you can sit at home and be content with yourself? No. So that we'll go out and proclaim it. So that we'll go out and share it. You may have heard it said like this before. Uh, We are not cul-de-sacs of his grace. We are rather highways of God's grace, meant to transport the gospel all across the globe. To use the verbiage of Jesus, he doesn't give us light to put under a basket and to hide. He gives us light. He opens our minds. He gives us light in our hearts so that his light might shine through our lives and so that others might see him and come to follow him. Stated in kind of a quick little card, right? Hallmark card, quote, he blesses us so that we can bless others. That's the entire thrust of Scripture God blesses us that we might give and share with others. This does not only apply to the pastor. Okay, sometimes I think it's easy to read this and we think, you know what, yeah, I like peace from God. I like having a deeper knowledge of the Bible. But then as soon as I were to mention evangelism or the Great Commission, uh, that's not for me, I don't have that gift of evangelism. I'm shy, I'm introverted, I don't know what to say. We'll get a few of those excuses in just a moment. Right? But we don't think that applies to me. That's only for the pastor. That's only for the missionaries. Show me where that is in the Bible. And then we can talk about that. You won't find it there. It's for everybody. If you're a Christian, and if you're alive, if you're breathing, this applies to you. What role do you have in that? How are you engaging in that work? So church, why does he give us peace? Number two. 
to proclaim his gospel to all peoples. Thirdly and finally, how do we do this? How shall we then live? Verses 49 to 53. We can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's no question that the Great Commission is hard. It's very, very hard. There's many challenges that we face. I saw, I looked up, I I just Googled, why do we not share the gospel? Or why do Christians not share the gospel? Just to see, what does the Google search um, show? A few reasons. Certainly, you identify with some of them. Fear. Fear of different reasons. Fear, I don't know what to say. Fear, I might offend somebody. Fear. Lack of opportunity. I feel unequipped. Frankly, and this is a scary one, I I just frankly, I don't have an interest to. I don't really have a desire to. I'm too busy, too shy. I'm introverted. I don't want to be rejected. It's hard to bring this kind of stuff up with people. I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to offend people. God's word challenges us on each of those things. And if you zoom out even more, when you consider the cross-cultural context of what Jesus is talking about, right? begin in Jerusalem, begin at home, begin with your own families, spread it to the nations. When you think about cross-cultural missions, that's extremely hard to do. To learn the language, to learn their customs, to learn their thought process, their categories of thinking, being obedient is extremely hard. Amen to that one? Right? It's very hard to do. And frankly, I'll go a step further, it's impossible to do. It is the true mission impossible. And Jesus knows this. He's fully aware. He knows all things. So then, why does he give us this command? To shame us? To always hold over us? Oh, you'll never live up to this? Is that why he gives us this command? No. He gives us the impossible so that what? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He calls us to do the impossible so that he can do the work through us. So that he can do the work through broken vessels. And this is the promise he makes in verse 48. You're witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And that's what Acts chapter 2 is. Acts chapter 2 is the fruition, the fulfillment of Jesus' promise or prophecy there. Because in Acts chapter 2, you fast forward a little bit again in the story, God's people, some of them are gathered, and what happens? The Spirit of God descends upon them in power, in fire, and they go out and proclaim the gospel to many cultures, many different languages. They need the Spirit of God. As one of the newer songs go one of the lyrics from it says the church of christ was born then the spirit lit the flame now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel shall not faint have you all ever heard that phrase god will never give you more than you can handle god will never give you more than you can handle that's simply not true there that is not in the bible that's not a bible verse and it's not true Because the reality is, for a Christian, I can't say all the time, God gives us so much more than we can do. So much more than we can do. Why? So that we'll fall to our knees. 
so that we'll look up to him and say, Lord, I need you. Give me the wisdom. Give me the strength. Give me the love. Give me the patience. Give me the grace. Give me what I need to be obedient to your word. I need you. I'm thinking in context of today, the context of parenting, right? Insanely hard. He doesn't want us to do it by ourselves. He wants us to rely upon the power of the Spirit. And you know what Jesus said in John 14? In 15, in that whole upper room discourse, right? Jesus, this was the last meal, the last supper, the last moments of peace, relative peace, before the chaos of the crucifixion. Jesus is encouraging them. And even there, it's interesting, Jesus said, peace, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. So again, he's giving them peace. But then also, he practically says, it's for your good. It's to your advantage. It's to your benefit that I'm leaving because I'm going to send my spirit who's going to live inside of you. And I have one book at home. It's called Jesus Continued. It's by J.D. Greer, pastor in North Carolina. But it's, it's a wonderful title, very intriguing. Jesus Continued, dot, dot, dot. Why the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. And it's true because that's what Jesus literally said. Right? It's better that the Spirit is here. It's better that I'm gone because the Spirit can be with us everywhere. Part of your heavenly homework, if you want, read John 14. Who is the Spirit? What does he do? That's, a, again, a whole other sermon series right there. But brothers and sisters, I simply say this. You and I need the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God. Right? I, I, if you didn't know, I grew up in a Pentecostal charismatic background. And though I may not agree with a lot of specifics, expressions of how that may be manifested, the one thing I do appreciate that has been impressed upon my heart is the simple fact that those people in those camps, they at least acknowledge the Spirit's real. They acknowledge that he exists. Right? It's a travesty that there are some churches that never mention him that never pay homage to him, that never seek him, that never pray for his strength because he is the third person of the Trinity, okay? We cannot live this Christian life without him. You cannot do it. We need him. We need to acknowledge him. We need to be aware that he is with us. We need to be submissive to him, right? We need to rely upon the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel according to Luke. And this is not the end of the story. As you know, it continues in the book of Acts. And if you want to know what happens after Acts, well, look around you right now. This is the continuation of that story that Jesus first began. And as you and I, in 2023, as you and I walk on this road of discipleship, as we now follow in the footsteps of our Savior, as we now seek to be obedient to his command, I remind you of what we just looked at our resurrected Lord gives us peace so that we might proclaim his gospel to all peoples. And we can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel according to Luke. Church, will you pray with me and then let's close with the doxology. Our Father, may your kingdom come. Jesus, may we delight in your love. And Holy Spirit, please help us to stand upon the truth of your word and help us to speak it by your power.
In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.